An article about a visit of Charles Dickens in North America was published in McLean's magazine in December of 1953. It begins, At half past nine on an April morning in 1842, a locomotive with a tall, funnel-shaped smokestack pulling a string of spindly railroad cars puffed to a stop at the first station out of Buffalo on the line to Niagara Falls. A smallish, slender man of 30 jumped off, his face tense with excitement, and cupped a hand to his ear. The falls were still miles away, but Charles Dickens, characteristically, couldn't wait to catch the sound of their roar. And although he couldn't and didn't until the train got right to Niagara, he tried again at every station. On the way across the ocean from Liverpool, he'd made friends with Lord Mulgrave, a young army officer coming out to join his regiment in Canada. Mulgrave was badly stage-struck, and so was Dickens, who'd written two plays that were produced in London and had directed and acted in several amateur productions as well. Dickens had promised Mulgrave to come to Montreal when his U.S. visit was over and stage-manage an evening of theatricals to be put on by the garrison officers and their ladies. The author had been looking eagerly forward to this tremendous treat ever since. It was decided that the military amateurs were to do three plays, and Dickens was to act in all of them. And he'd taken the precaution of having a flaxen wig and a pair of special comic eyebrows sent up from New York for his part of Snobbington in past two o'clock. He wasn't sure such things could be had in Montreal. When Mulgrave called on Dickens at Rascoe's, he was all ready to go to work. The Theatre Royal had been rented for the night of May 25th and renamed the Queen's Theatre for that one occasion. Dickens wrote to a friend about the rehearsals, I would give something if you could only stumble into that very dark and dusty theatre in the daytime and see me with my coat off, the stage manager and universal director, urging impracticable ladies and impossible gentlemen on the very confines of insanity. When Dickens wasn't at the theater, he and wife Kate were being entertained in the houses of their new friends or taken sightseeing around Montreal. But when he came to writing his travel book, he only gave the city of Montreal two paragraphs. He was obviously so absorbed with directing and rehearsing the plays that nothing else interested him very much. The florid acting style of the 1840s was exactly suited to Dickens, who often behaved offstage as though he were bathed in limelight and playing to a vast audience. Yet, strangely enough, he almost missed a wonderful chance to make a grand gesture just before the curtain went up on the great night. The Governor-General, Sir Charles Baggett, was to be there, and Dickens wrote that he and Lord Mulgrave were going out to the front of the theater to receive him when the regular prompter followed us in agony with four tall candlesticks with wax candles in them and besought us with a bleeding heart to carry two apiece in accordance with all the precedents. Because these were private theatricals, as the playbill called them, no seats were sold and admission was by invitation only. A long table of refreshments had been set up in the lobby, and after the show, there was a buffet supper for the 400 guests. 
The whole affair was so very social that the reviewer from the Herald concentrated on the audience rather than the actors. But Deaf as a Post was such a dismal failure that the Montreal Herald's critic felt obliged to say that it was not so well sustained as its predecessors. The reviewer from the transcript agreed with him, although he praised everything and everyone else, and especially Dickens. In that part where the expression of his madness bordered on the tragic, he was peculiarly happy. Dickens played a comic servant in the farce that flopped, and a juvenile part in the main piece. In past two o'clock, he had the lead as Mr. Snobbington. He warmed his hands at a real fireplace on the stage. It was blazing away like mad, and he wore two nightcaps, one with a tassel and one with flannel, a dressing gown, drab tights, and the special wig and eyebrows he'd ordered from New York. I really do believe that I was very funny, he wrote afterward. At least I know that I laughed heartily at myself. That from McLean's Magazine in December 1953. Arthur Benson tells us for Dickens, theater was his chosen recreation, his favorite pastime, anything to do with acting, going to a theater, organizing private theatricals, taking a part. Dickens loved theater. So here he was in Canada, able again at last to immerse himself in the world of theater that he so loved. Dickens' experience with theater and his awe at viewing Niagara Falls would probably be what Dickens would take with him in his heart from his visit to Canada. As it happens, we are about to talk about Justin Haig from Toronto, who, like Dickens, has a love of theater in its many forms, writing, directing, designing sets and sounds. Justin is a Toronto-based writer and theater artist who has created a new adaptation of the much-loved novella by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, performed to enthusiastic reviews in Toronto. And the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre will stage the U.S. premiere this holiday season from December 8th through the 17th. We had a visit from David Parmalee, general manager, and Little Theater veterans Mark Finkelstein and Walter Mitchell Jr., who serve as director and assistant director. We talked about the theater first, a little bit of history, and then the new adaptation. Walter Mitchell. We're actually about to announce our 102nd consecutive anniversary season. Contrary to popular belief, I have not been there all that time. <laughs> but community theater in general is a labor of love. When you talk about amateur theater, it comes from the Latin, amo, amas, amat, which means to love. And amateurs obviously don't get paid pittance, zero, nada. So it takes a love of the art form to really commit the time and energy that it takes to mount quality theatrical productions, mm -hmm. of which we are blessed in northeastern Pennsylvania with having 12 to 14 community theaters, some of which have been around for 40 and 50 years, none as long as Little Theater, 
but many of them can look back and find their own genesis from people that were working in Little Theater and have gone out to form their own company. Music Box in Suarezville is a perfect example where they said, this is great for proscenium full stage productions, but what about a dinner theater? Mm -hmm. Well, they did it and have done it quite successfully because they've celebrated more than 40 years in in that capacity. Then there was Theater in the Round, which Showcase Theater initiated. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're no longer with us, but for many, many years, they performed avant-garde, edgy stuff in the round, where the audience really was immersed in what's going on. But in terms of Little Theater, it has consistently provided, year in and year out, top quality, what we call Broadway in your backyard, community theater from a main stage setting to an audience of 200 or more, depending upon how far back you want to go in its history. Little Theater started with play readings in members' homes in the early 1920s, and then it became a vagabond theater company going from the Wyoming Seminary Lower School location to a small building on North Washington Street across from Coughlin High School. And then when the Sterling Moving Theater, which is located at 537 North Main Street in Wilkesbury, went up for sale, the Little Theater Board of Directors got on it immediately, made an offer. The offer was accepted by Columbia Theaters, and that was in 1955. And since that Mm. time, over the next two years, they put in a brick proscenium arch over the main stage, took out the screen, of course, that they did not need, put in some backstage dressing rooms, and in 1957 produced their first ever show in that location. And they've been there ever since. And uh, before we had HVAC put in the building in 2018, we did about four shows a year. Now we're up to actually eight presentations, most of them from the main stage and most of them full productions with the exception of the Rocky Horror Show, which we do every Halloween. And now we have a one-axe festival in August. We also have a youth theater workshop for kids ages 5 through 17, which is every summer two nights a week and a Sunday afternoon. And the kids are exposed to every aspect of theater, not only acting, singing, dance, makeup, costuming, and technical work. So by the time their eight-week experience is over, they really know every aspect of what it takes to put on a community theater presentation. So... If, if anything, I suffer from the sin of pride because of the history of the little theater and what it has grown to over that period of time, and I don't think we've been in any better shape, not only in terms of what we produce on the stage, but also fiscally. Many community theaters live from show to show, and they depend upon, well, how many tickets did we sell for the last show so that we can now pay the rights to do the next show. The public doesn't have any idea 
what it takes to put on a production. If if I said to you, Mamma Mia, how much would you think it would cost to do that show? Well, you have to pay your musicians. That's $2,500. You have to pay the publishing house for the rights to do the show. That's anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500. This is long before you've sold your first ticket. So to say community theater is a challenge would be an understatement. But fortunately for Little Theater, we've developed a template. Many thanks to our current general manager, David Parmalee, from whom you will hear in a moment. We have never been in better shape. And I want to thank everyone in the Northeastern Pennsylvania audience for helping us not only sustain our reputation, but to enhance our reputation, both artistically and fiscally. Walt, if I do understand what you say about HVAC, before you had the heating and cooling system, you wouldn't have been able to produce a holiday show in December. It would have been too cold. Not only cold, but what happened in those days was that they would drain the pipes in the building. They would not attempt to heat the building. They would drain the pipes because it was just so expensive to heat the building. It still is. I'm not saying that just because we have an HVAC system, it's a cheap date. No way. If anything, it's costing us a lot more. Uh, but they drained the pipe so there would be no productions from the end of November till the beginning of March. And they would rehearse off-site for the show that would be mounted in March. Fortunately, we don't have to do that anymore. David, now that you have the opportunity, the delight of producing a holiday show, how do you make a choice? Is it always a Christmas carol? That's a very good question, Erica. We always do Rocky Horror at Halloween. That was Walter's idea, and we're grateful for it. It brings out all sorts of folks having a great time. There's nothing like it. And our last production in the year is always the Christmas season or holiday season show. And we thought, it's not so good once September ends to be doing the same two shows every year, the three months of a season, everyone says, well, it's the same thing. So we decided, at least for the time being, to do Christmas Carol every other year. And in between, we do other things, Christmas Story, Annie, White Christmas, etc. So there are all kinds of things to choose from. But boy, there is no family show quite like Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. So we just love doing it. And you've tipped us off that this is a very special version of A Christmas Carol. It is. Uh, about a year ago, I got an email from Justin Haig, who's a Canadian playwright based in Toronto. And he said, would you be interested in reading my Christmas Carol? Well, of course, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is a novella. It's the shortest book he ever wrote by quite a bit. I think 135 pages or so. But he never adapted it for the stage. And it is the most easily adapted thing for the stage you could imagine. It was meant to be performed. In, in fact, Dickens read from the book continually. He would stage a public reading. And I believe the week he passed away, he had just done a public reading. Mm -hmm. So clearly it lends itself to performance. And we can all see why. Scrooge, the spirits, Tiny Tim, it's just perfect. So there are several adaptations out there. In fact, there are even musical adaptations. Uh, one year, and not long ago, we did an original adaptation written by two area playwrights and musicians. So you kind of have a choice. Which Christmas carols should we do? 
if you're doing Hamlet, there's only one, but Christmas Carol, there's several. So I read Justin's script and I was delighted. It was fresh, very nice for modern audiences. It was fun, was a little shorter than some of them, which is nice for families, especially bringing kids. And I said, this is a well-written piece. We ran it past our artistic director and our board, and sure enough, they liked it just as well. So he got a response that playwrights don't often get to a blind email sent out, which was, yes, we'd love to do your show. He has done it in Canada to excellent reviews. He's done it in historic homes and on stage. And uh, we can't wait to see how it translates to our facility. We think it's going to be just great. This will be the first time it's ever been done outside of Canada. So Mm -hmm. technically, it's the U.S. premiere right here in Wilkes-Barre. Mark, you're directing. How did you get drawn into the project? Uh, I was working with my wife one Friday at the pantry at the JCC in Kingston, and I get a text from Walter saying, can we chat a little bit? So I called him up, and he said, would you like to direct a Christmas carol? And I thought, hmm, ah, well, yeah, that would be a great challenge to do. And I'm glad I did. I mean, it's a wonderful experience. Uh, The people are delightful. The story is, is... like David said, it's, it's, it's fresh, it's original, it's different. And I think the audience will really, really enjoy it because it's something that you've never, never seen before. I mean, you've seen um, adaptations, comedies, musicals. Uh, I was watching uh, the Alistair Sims 1950 movie, which I enjoy, and, and all the rest of them. But this one, uh, this one has a bit of a, you know, something, something different. So I think the, the audience will really appreciate it. Sadly, the theme of greed and self-centeredness is a perennial one, and it's certainly timely in our day. Yeah, the Christmas Carol was almost miraculous, the original book. He wrote it in about six weeks. He was a little short on cash at the time. One of his books wasn't selling so well, and his publisher was making noises, and he thought, I've got to get something out quickly. And he would write it by taking 15 to 20-mile walks at night, and come back and and write everything he thought of. There's a lot in it from Dickens' own life. Uh, His father ran into debt, was put in prison, and Dickens, at a very young age, had to leave school and work in a shoe factory under terrible conditions. So he knows a little of what he's talking about there. He had visited tin mines in Cornwall. It was just appalled by the conditions under which children were working. Visited some places in the United States later in life, same thing. So he was about to publish a letter saying, we need to reform. There was no such thing then as what we think of as the safety net. And the people who were forced into horrible circumstances were not people who didn't want to work or or, or were trying to live off the government. There was no such thing. These were what we would call widows and orphans. And many of them were widows and orphans. And there was very little provision made in the great wealth that occurred in 1840s England during the Industrial Revolution for that type of safety net. People hadn't simply thought of it. Those who survived and made money, good for them. And those who couldn't, well, that's not my problem. And the book touched hearts so profoundly. It's it's sold out in nine days. It came out the week before Christmas in 1843. Sold out in nine days. He sold out 13 more editions in 1844 even though it had been pirated by some scallywags in a company who sold it for literally pennies on the dollar, which hurt Dickens tremendously. It was a very expensive book, the way he printed it. But the impact was so great 
that people have estimated the Christmas Carol effect, as it's called, doubled charitable giving in Great Britain. People were moved by the book so greatly that they said, how can I help? I didn't realize. I hadn't thought of it. And, of course, that has continued. So many of our Christmas traditions have come from it. But looking back on the society in which he lived and worked, the impact he had was just amazing with that small volume. Never been out of print, been printed in many languages in many countries. And if you ask people, name a book by Charles Dickens. He's got 800-page books in there. Most people will say A Christmas Carol. If this Canadian version is somewhat shorter, we don't want to ruin any surprises. But are scenes like the Fezziwig's party intact? Oh, yes. Yes, it's it's a it's a rowdy party and it's a, it's a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, it's 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 what it's it's gonna be something really special and, and a lot of uh, singing and hoopla and what have you. A Christmas Carol is a story with characters who are an older Scrooge to the young Tiny Tim. How does that play out for you in your cast? Everybody is flowing well. It's like one big family. Uh, there's, there's no trouble at all. Everybody's enjoying what they do, and they're getting into their parts. So it's, it's, it's a director's dream. Fortunately, some of our young people have already been through our workshop. So explaining downstage from upstage, and you're supposed to be here in the blocking instead of here, most of them know automatically what it is we're talking about. We have to go through an extended educational process, shall we say, about the basics of theater presentation. Having said that, there is no drama off the stage with this gang. In other words, no cliques have developed. Uh, everybody seems to enjoy each other's company. It's like the best casts that I've been attached with over my my lifetime on stage, which started at the age of eight, I mm. think. And it's a small cast, so a lot of people are doubling and tripling on roles. And that's really neat because an audience member might say, you know, that face looks familiar to me because they'll be in completely different costumes. Have I seen that? Has that person been on stage before in this show or am I thinking of something else? And it gives the cast members who are doubling and tripling the opportunity to completely broaden their talent because they have to be this for this character, and now they have to be this for this character. And it's, it's really a neat experience. You know. Mark, what about the sets? The sets, the sets are, are rather simple because it's a shortened version of the, the story, what have you. But it's doable. Everybody is you know, enjoying it. We're going to have move it around very nicely and it's going to be planned excellently yeah, yeah we move exactly. in uh, on dollies essentially yes yes roll uh, it right in we roll in set pieces and roll them off but when it comes to mind of course is scrooge's four poster bed that's rolled in for one scene and then rolled off another scene is a simple dining room table with chairs in the cratchit's dining room scene but we use the whole theater i'm playing the ghost of christmas present and when I take Scrooge on a flight over <laughs> the London countryside, we actually go out into the audience and go and form a, a flight plan all the way around so that people get an up-close and personal glimpse of the ghost of Christmas present mm -hmm. and Scrooge. And uh, 
it's fun to do that sort of thing is to break down what they call the fourth wall, you know, which is the audience back is the fourth wall. When typically proscenium theater, you don't break that fourth wall. Uh, but we've intentionally done that because we think it adds a, a bit of excitement to that scene as well. We have two on our technical crew that are doing wonderful work. Uh, Mike King, who's our tech director building the sets, had, I believe, a 30-year career with Mountain Productions and others who were in the business of supporting rock and roll. And there are only two or three bands he didn't work with. He, he taught Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead how to eat a lobster one day in Portland, Maine. I just envy him. Uh, he's done presidential inaugurations, presentations on flight decks of carriers. You know, this is fairly easy for Mike, and he always manages to come up with something wonderful. And building costumes, we have Kitty Ortiz, who recently came to our theater a couple of years ago in our production mm. of Into the Woods. And Kitty is a seamstress. Uh, she actually sews and creates costumes and did theater a little while back in Long Island and has now come to our area. So she's creating uh, Victorian-era costumes out of Levi's and things like that. So yeah. you'll see some marvelous costuming and sets in the production. Yeah, they're excellent, both of them. This version of A Christmas Carol is not a musical, but there is music as part of your overall presentation any given day or evening. Yes, we wanted to offer audiences a complete holiday experience. One of the great things about hosting audiences during our Christmas shows, and we've done it since the first one I have, I've hosted people, greeted them coming in. Uh, It's marvelous to see your friends who do theater coming to a production, people you know. It's a great compliment. But it is wonderful to see people at Christmas time or the holidays who don't go to theater, where you'll see grandparents bringing little boys, little girls, all dressed up in the, the outfit, you know, the red velvet dress, that kind of thing. They've made it a special occasion as part of their holidays to see something that maybe those little ones have never seen before, or certainly that they don't normally see. So you have a whole lot of folks coming through the lobby to see the show, uh, who don't normally come to live theater. You know, Tennessee Williams or Shakespeare might not hold much interest for them, but Christmas Carol does. And we wanted to give them a complete experience. So our uh, Christmas Carol's going to last about 90 minutes. We're going to mm-hmm. take a brief intermission and come back to share some Christmas music at most of the performances. And we're still buttoning that up. But we're going to have Kim Johnson's Vocal Artistry Studio on Sunday matinees. Kim is a marvelous vocalist and teacher who works with us in our summer workshop and will often do music direction there. And I think she's got nearly 100 students of various ages, and she's assembling a select ensemble to come in and and perform. She's going to bring lyric sheets so the audience can sing along. Uh, On Friday evenings, we've got Claire Alfrey, who's in local media, and she's a marvelous performer as well, very talented young woman who's on our board. And she's going to play and bring some friends. So we're calling the ensemble Claire Alfrey and Friends, perform Christmas music, and again, allow the audience to sing along. And Walter just shared with me, I think we have a brass ensemble, don't we? We do, called We Three. Mm. It's three trombones. Something you don't often see. No, not at all. Donald Williams and Michael Stair and his brother. Dr. Mark Stair. They have a 45 to 50 minute routine that they do on three trombones with holiday music and Don's the director of the Wyoming Valley Band and it is from that that he drew the other two to make their trio 
And he says, we always ask the audience, come on, sing along, whatever it is. So I'm sure that all of the music we're going to hear is going to be very familiar to the holiday season. So we still have that one opening left on the 16th. If anybody wants to reach out, we'd love to have your group with us. It'd be great. If you've ever wanted to perform at Little Theater, because that's how you know you've really made it. (laughs) Your chance. That's your chance now. (laughs) You tell us. Of course, that A Christmas Carol is a long-standing tradition now at the Little Theatre of Wilkes-Barre, but that this version from Canada is something new and fresh. So we get something old, something new. England had gone through various stages of how it treated Christmas. You know, after the Reformation and the separation from the church, etc., what was considered approved, what was considered not approved, and things had sort of come back. Christmas carols themselves had died out and had begun to come back in Dickens' day. So when he he wrote A Christmas Carol, he was taking advantage of a trend that was just occurring. The Christmas tree hadn't made it to England yet. And there were other things, Christmas feasts. Some people observe them, some people don't. So when, when Scrooge and his nephew talk about, do you keep Christmas? Or how do you keep Christmas? Of course, everybody knew it was the holiday, the church holiday. But here's Cratchit trying to get Christmas Day off. Well, it wasn't a given. Some people took the day off, some people didn't. And Scrooge did not keep Christmas. He didn't believe in the tradition. There was no joy or merriment in his heart. Uh, So to him, no, he never kept Christmas. So at the end, in his moment of change and revelation, the the, the biggest arc a character has ever made probably in the course of 135 pages, he says, I will now keep Christmas in my heart and keep it by the way I treat others. And that's exactly what Dickens was aiming at. What are your Christmas traditions? Well, let's start with the internal ones. Mm -hmm. Let's start with how we treat friends, family, and the less fortunate in society in general. And then we talk about the things we do at home or with family. And so many of them have become part of the American Christmas tradition, along with things like Santa holding the bottle of Coke and, you know, Rudolph, (laughs) the abominable snowman. We all have our own traditions. But that was a time of of, uh, big change in the way the English celebrated the holiday. So God bless us, everyone, we say to Charles Dickens. Look what you managed to do by walking 20 miles a night for six weeks and writing it all down. It has endured since that time. And Scrooge, he started off as a, a miser, you know, he hated everything and what happened. And at the end, he became a mensch. <laughs> he became a mensch. He so became now, a real human being. <laughs> you didn't tell us the show has comic elements. Well, we can see for ourselves where and when. Well, let's see. We start on the 8th, don't we, Walter? Yeah. We start on the 8th. Yes. So the 8th and 9th, Friday and Saturday at 8, and Sunday the 10th at 3. And then the same times for the following weekend, Friday and Saturday at 8, Sunday at 3. Walter Mitchell, Jr., who is Artistic Director of the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre and Assistant Director of this production, and Mark Finkelstein, Director of A Christmas Carol at the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre, with David Parmalee, General Manager. And the production of A Christmas Carol is special. It is a new adaptation by Toronto-based writer and theater artist Justin Hay. And this will be the U.S. premiere. 
and we have a chance to see A Christmas Carol at the Little Theater with a holiday review, December 8th through the 17th, Fridays and Saturdays at 8 p.m., Sundays at 3, at the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre, 537 North Main Street. For more information, on the web, ltwb.org, ltwb.org, the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre, 537 North Main Street, presenting a new adaptation of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And the playwright who did the adapting is Justin Hay from Toronto. It's December 8th through the 17th, Fridays and Saturdays at 8, Sundays at 3, ltwb.org, ltwb.org. 